Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Catch new episodes of The O Show for free, available on all audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. For full video versions of the podcast, head on over to YouTube and StarWorldWideNetworks.com. The O Show is presented by Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Mayweather Boxing and Fitness is an inclusive, high-intensity fitness experience developed by the champ Floyd Money Mayweather himself, the best group boxing workout in the market, Mayweather Boxing and Fitness. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack. You had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey. What's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien, with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's probably gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. it's going to be a weird season what are you guys like how are you guys prepping for broadcast moving forward over here in these next few days are the astros doing uh, uh team scrimmages right now um they haven't i don't think they've done any true scrimmages yet um but yeah as far as i know we're not doing anything until the season starts wow which is which is fine by me honestly <laughs> but, uh, yeah so um, yeah once july 24th hits i guess i'll be back to work have you enjoyed the time off? I mean, yes and no. I mean, yeah. obviously, with everything going on, it's kind of hard to. But, um, you know, I've gotten to spend a lot more time with my daughter this time of year than I usually do, which has been nice. Been able to work on some other stuff that I don't normally get to do when the season's going on. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still been tough. Well, that's always a good thing to spend time with family. And then, I mean, you, you think it's going to be very odd broadcasting games in an empty stadium where, like, everybody's going to be able to hear what you guys say up there? Well, you know, they're talking about pumping in fake, fake crowd noise. Uh, so that's that interesting. A little bit. But, um, yeah, it's going to be different because you feed off the energy of the crowd. You feed off, you know, all of that. So do the players. Uh, I think the harder part is going to be doing road games looking at a TV monitor yeah. uh, rather than actually being there. Um, I think that, that's, that'll be tougher. But, um, 
you know, this is what we're broadcasters. This is what we're supposed to do, so we'll figure it out. New era. It's going to be great storytelling from years to come. Uh, and, again, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me, aspiring young broadcaster. I kind of wanted to just pick your brain a, bit, a little bit about how you got into broadcasting. Like, did you know that you wanted to be a broadcaster at a very young age, and did, did you find it uh, kind of humbling at first when you first broke into broadcasting? Because you went to Syracuse, right? Yeah, I went to Syracuse. Um I knew I loved sports at a young age and that baseball was my favorite sport. I didn't grow up thinking that I was going to be a broadcaster, although I think like a lot of kids, I'd fool around, act like I was broadcasting right. off the TV with the sound down and stuff like that. Um, and I did pay a lot of attention to who the broadcasters were. And it was something my dad and I would talk a lot about. We watched a lot of games together and we would talk a lot about the different broadcasters why we like certain broadcasters, why we didn't like other broadcasters. Uh, I mean, I didn't know that I was going to do this, but it wound up being pretty good preparation. Uh, and my dad was actually the first person to ever bring up to me that, you know, Syracuse is where a lot of the uh, sports broadcasters come from, uh, which I didn't know before that I was a kid. And again, just one of those things you hear as a kid, and, you know, didn't really think much about it. And then obviously, once I got interested initially in, in just broadcast journalism, uh, it became pretty obvious that Syracuse would be a good place for me to go, and my dad was certainly a big advocate for me going there. Um, but yeah, I um, went to college thinking that I wanted to be a, uh, a sports anchor or sports reporter, uh, realized latter part of sophomore year that play-by-play -play was really what I wanted to do, particularly baseball play-by-play. And so from that point forward, I basically just tried to figure out how to how to do it, first of all, and then how to get jobs and then how to keep advancing. Uh, but, yeah, it really started the latter part of my sophomore year of college when I realized that play-by-play -play was what I wanted to do. What was the, when was the first time that you actually did a play-by-play -play gig at Syracuse? Well, not including calling games into a tape recorder um, <laughs> from the rafters of the or from the uh, upper reaches of the carrier dome yeah. uh the first time i was ever on the air uh on a on an actual broadcast was high school football uh i was a senior at syracuse at the time and uh there was a little station wzzzam where the call letters and it was in fulton new york which is a yeah. town about 45 minutes or so from syracuse and they broadcasted Fulton High School Red Raiders sports. And I knew the uh, sports director for the station it was this guy named Ed Gonser, who uh, also uh, worked for the Associated Press. And I knew him because I was doing some stuff for the minor league hockey team at Syracuse, Syracuse Crunch. I was actually doing some ringside reporting uh, on air for them, but I wasn't doing any play-by-play -play on air. Yeah, um, And so... But, you know, it was a great experience, and I, I, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about hockey before that. But that's how I got to know Ed. Um, and so he asked me to do a Fulton High School football game with him. Uh, it, was a, it was a playoff game, uh, and it was at, uh, it was at the time it was called PNC Stadium. It's called something else now. It was the, uh, it's the home of the, the AAA baseball team in Syracuse. And they would have high school football playoff games there as well. At the time, the field was AstroTurf. Now it's grass. So I don't know if they still do that. But at the time, the field was AstroTurf. And they would have high school football games there. And so 
yeah, it was myself and Ed doing this game. I was the uh, color commentator, and Ed did the play-by-play. Um, and uh, so we did that game, and Fulton won the game, so they advanced. Uh, and the next week, they were going to be playing a playoff game at the Carrier Dome right on Syracuse's campus. And so for that game, uh, Ed said to me, um, you can do that game uh, and find – you can uh, – you know, find other people to work with you uh, because, you know, the budget was zero dollars. So, I mean, it didn't yeah. really matter how many of my friends I asked to do it. And obviously being a broadcast journalism major, I had lots of friends who were in the same field. And so he had told me, Ed had told me, he was like, get someone to do color and play-by-play with you and get someone to do stats. So that's what I did. I remember I got uh, my friend Joe Babick, who I actually did the hockey stuff with, and we traded off on play-by-play and color. I did play-by-play for two quarters. He did play-by-play for the other two quarters. Um, and then whoever was doing play-by-play was the analyst. And then my friend Howie Balaban, Howie Balaban, I got him to do stats. And if I remember correctly, he also did the halftime show where he basically just read the stats right. um, that he had compiled. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was our broadcast team and that was the first time I did play by play for any sport on the air. Uh and yeah, it was Fulton High School against Elmira Free Academy. Um and uh if I remember correctly, Fulton won that game and advanced. Um and they and their next game was in Buffalo, if I remember correctly, at uh, at the Bills Stadium and I you know, I didn't do that game. <laughs> and did that game, and I, feel, I think they lost in that game, and then that was it for them, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but yeah, that, that was the first time I actually got to do uh, play-by-play of any sport actually uh, on the air. And being a big baseball guy growing up, obviously now broadcasting in, in pro baseball, what's, what's the biggest thing like uh, adapting-wise to calling a football game or a hockey game, basketball game? I know football is, like, as a matter of fact, just has to be the most different out of all sports given how many guys are actually on the field and how much you actually have to prep for those games. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously with all the players on, fo- on the football team, uh, that, that poses a challenge. Uh, but I think... Uh, all the sports kind of pose unique challenges. Baseball is different from the others that you mentioned just because there's so much more time mm-hmm. between action. Uh, so you have more time to paint the picture, tell stories, uh, and, and prep, I think, uh, becomes... I mean, prep is important for anything you do, but I think in baseball it becomes so important uh, because you just have so much time where there is an action. And... Uh, you know, you need to say something. Now, you can let the ambient noise carry you from time to time, but uh, you, you, you don't have, you can't just uh, rely on the action to carry you, especially doing the games on radio. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, basketball, football, and hockey, I mean, for the most part, you really only have time to call the plays. And it's important to prep, but you're not going to get as exposed in those sports with your prep as you would in baseball because uh, you could do very little prep in theory and still call a basketball, hockey, or football game and just just calling the action. Uh, and uh, you can kind of get away with that. Uh, I think when doing those sports, it becomes more important, and it's important in baseball, but it becomes more important in those sports because you have so little time to get a timely stat right. at the right time. 
I think that becomes uh, even more important with those sports uh, just because you just have such a, a small window and that's when prep becomes important that's when organizing your information in a way that you can get to it quickly becomes important as well uh, because that's the worst thing when you're searching when you know you have something and you're searching for it to get it just right, right. you can't find it uh, <laughs> and, you know you're doing basketball or football or hockey on the radio and you're just not going to have a whole lot of time right and you being at Syracuse you have a ton of experience in minor league baseball what, what do you think the biggest struggle or kind of the most humbling experience was broadcasting in minor league baseball all of those years and what did what was some of like the biggest things that you took away from those experiences well, I mean, everything about minor league baseball is humbling, to be honest with you. I mean, you, you don't do it unless you love it, because everything else is just so humbling about it that uh, if you don't love it, you're, you're just going to say, I don't want to be bothered with this. Whether you're talking about uh, the long bus rides, whether you're talking about uh, the lack of off days, there are a lot fewer off days on a minor league schedule than there is on a major league schedule. Usually there's about one a month, and then, you know, maybe you have a two or three day all star break in, in June or July. Um, you're not making a whole lot of money um, very often. You're either asked to be seasonal, and so then you have to find another job in the off season, or uh, you're asked to wear several different hats. Um, I was usually seasonal, but I still did media relations and had to type out game notes every single day in addition to prepping for my own broadcast. Um, you know, wow. a lot of minor league broadcasters also have to do sales yeah. uh, in addition to broadcast. Uh, so, I mean, really, everything about doing minor league games is humbling, uh, but you do it because you love it. Um, and obviously, uh, I think everybody who puts on a headset to do a game, hopes that they can do it at a national level or at the major league level, but that's not always going to happen. Uh, you know, you can obviously get to a point, even at the minor league level, where you're reasonably comfortable, you're making a decent living, mm -hmm. maybe you don't have to wear as many hats as uh, other broadcasters do, or as, as maybe you did in, in earlier in your career. Um, but yeah, I would have to say, and I mean, I loved every minute of it, don't get right. me wrong. But, uh, yeah, everything about minor league baseball is humbling, especially once you, you know, if you're fortunate enough to get to the major leagues and you see how much better everything is, uh, it helps you realize just how, how humbling that whole experience is. What do you think was the biggest um, issue or, like, kind of the most funny story when it came to a production standpoint in minor league baseball, whether it was, like, sitting on the bleachers or, like, some cores didn't work right? What was uh, something that you had to go through uh, early in your early days in minor league baseball when it came from a production standpoint? Well... One time, uh, so at the major league level, you're going to have a producer engineer yeah. who is going to set up the equipment and help you get on the air, whether it's a lot of times like with the Astros, our producer engineer, Matt Bolts, is a team employee, uh, so he travels with us. Um, not every team has an engineer who travels with their radio crew, but they're, they're, they'll hire one on the road. So every, you know, you always have someone to kind of help set up the equipment, yeah. maybe give you your reads and, and stuff like that, and, and just help you get situated. In the minor leagues, you don't have that. You're your own producer engineer. You're setting up your equipment. You're carrying your equipment, uh, you know, from the bus up through the stands to the broadcast booth. Uh, you're, you're doing it all. Um, and I remember one time, it was 2004, 
I was the radio broadcaster for the Kalamazoo Kings of the Independent Frontier League in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, our season was going to start that year on the road uh, against the team in Washington, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. It's about, if I remember correctly, it was about a five or six hour bus ride yeah. uh, from Kalamazoo. So um, I worked for the radio station and I had gotten the equipment uh, a day or two before I was going to leave for this road trip. Uh, so that way I could have it and wouldn't have to go back to the radio station to get it. Wow. So the, the morning I get up to go, you know, we're going to get on the bus to go to Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, for the game that night, uh, to open the season. And so I get up, I, um, you know, something tells me, you know, let me just do one last check of the equipment just to make sure I yeah. have everything. And so I open up the case that the equipment is in, and I realize that I forgot to grab the power cord for uh, the remote unit that we were using to, to get on the air. So I'm like, all right, I got, I'm like, you know, I might be coming a little close, but I have enough time as long as I'm pretty efficient with this. The radio station, I live really close to the radio station. So I, 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 so it was on my way to the field. So I stopped by the radio station, immediately get to the, find the power cord. I knew exactly where it was, went, got the power cord, got back in my car. You know, look at the time. <laughs> Again, you know, I'm going to cut it close. Yeah. I'm going to get there with five or ten minutes to spare. Um, but, you know, I'm doing okay, and it's Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm driving through downtown Kalamazoo. There, there, there's not a whole lot of traffic, even at rush hour. And I believe this was, like, pretty – this might have been 7 or 8 in the morning, somewhere wow. around there. So I'm driving through downtown Kalamazoo, which has one railroad crossing. I happen to get to that railroad crossing right when the gate closes. And sure enough, what seemed like the longest freight train I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life decided to go through Kalamazoo, downtown Kalamazoo, right at that time. And so at this point, I am extremely concerned because <laughs> I'm convinced I'm going to miss this bus and I'm trying to mentally prepare myself for the doing the drive to Washington, Pennsylvania on my own. Uh, and meanwhile, I am just furious sitting in the car, just watching this train go by. It seems like it's going, it's the slowest train I've ever seen in addition to the longest train I've ever yeah. seen. So as soon as the train finishes and the gates open, I am flying through that railroad crossing. Um, and I get to the ballpark, and right when I got to the ballpark, I see the bus starting to make its way through the parking lot of the stadium to get onto the street and, and eventually onto the highway. So I see the bus in the parking lot. I immediately uh, stick my hand out of I roll my window down. I, I didn't have power uh, windows. Oh, jeez. <laughs> completely automatic. Oh, my I God. Roll my, or not automatic. I completely, I roll my window down stick my hand out and kind of wave it outside of the window to get the bus's attention. <laughs> the bus stops, I immediately park, and, you know, of course, I'm just frazzled, and I run and, yeah. you know, I grab my equipment and throw it on the bus. You know, our manager sitting in the front, and I and he was new that year. Uh, Fran Reardon is his name, uh, uh, now manages uh, in, the, in the Oakland system. Uh, but, uh, you know, and meanwhile, this is like one of my first impressions with the new manager, here I am late for the bus uh, for the first trip of the year, 
And so I throw the equipment on, and I apologize to him, and I hurriedly find a seat next to somebody. And I usually had my own two seats, but I just, you know, I was just so frazzled. I just sat down. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember, so, you know, we get, we do the game, uh, or I do the game, and uh, after the game, I wind up at Denny's with a few of the players. Um, and there was a few of the players who had been on the team the year before, so they all knew me. Yeah. Uh, and so... Sure enough, one of the players says to me, really? First road trip of the year? You almost missed the bus? And so I go, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. And I I was like, I told him what happened. Um, And so then one of the other players goes, you know, before you got on the bus, I hadn't even noticed you weren't there. And and then, you know, you get on the bus. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess Robert wasn't here. Um, so hey, thanks, guys. Glad that I've made such an impact uh, in your lives that you uh, you remembered me. But uh, but yeah, that uh, that was about. That's the only time I've never missed a bus in my time in baseball. This will be my 19th year. Um, that's the only time I came close. Well, hopefully you keep that streak going. You, you gotta hope so. That, that I mean that that <laughs> I mean that just goes to show how uh, hectic things can get for you, especially in minor league baseball. How how difficult for you was it personally getting from that next step from minor league baseball to major league baseball, kind of sending in those demo tapes and getting recognized? Well, I mean, I think it's difficult for everyone. Yeah. There are a lot of really talented broadcasters who won't get a chance to call major league games, and it's not necessarily for any fault of their own. Right. It's just, these jobs are having the card to come by uh, as talented and as prepared as you need to be. There needs to be a little bit of luck, and there needs to be a little bit of good fortune and good timing. Um, my last two or three years when I was in Binghamton, my last stop in the minor leagues, AA Binghamton Mets, I would send my demo CD and resume to uh, just about every major league team's director of broadcasting, and I'd send it with a cover letter indicating that uh, you know, I'd be interested in filling in if you ever have a need for a fill-in broadcaster and uh, would also appreciate getting any feedback I could on my work. And, uh, you know, most didn't respond or responded with a form letter, but a handful of the directors of broadcasting did get back to me and did give me constructive and useful feedback. Uh, and I think that was really good for me because it let me know I was on the right track uh, and, it, you know, it helped me get better. Uh, so... Yeah, I think it it definitely is difficult, and there's always a question of, do you stay in the minor leagues? Do you take a job covering a major league team that may not be play-by-play, but maybe gets you closer to the major leagues? And I wound up doing the latter, getting a job with the Kansas City Royals uh, flagship radio station, Mm -hmm. doing pre-game and post-game shows, taking calls after all the Royals games, and, uh, you know, got to cover all the home games in person and watched all the road games uh, from a studio, um, and, you know, did call it shows after all of them. And, uh, that really helped me get confidence that I could do major league baseball play by play, that I could cover a major league team. I could be around a clubhouse. I, you know, it, it just, it just, uh, gave me that much more confidence that I could do it if given a chance. Unfortunately, the Astros gave me the opportunity. Now, making that shift over, like you mentioned, from uh, pre- and uh, post-game uh, position with the Royals on radio, from going to play-by-play with the Astros, what do you think it uh, specifically was for you that uh, gave you that opportunity, as opposed to just like your time, obviously, uh, in the minor leagues doing play-by-play? What do you think specifically made a difference for you doing that work with the Royals before uh, the Astros called and gave you the uh, green light? 
Well, I think there were a few things. Uh, number one, even though I wasn't doing play, baseball play-by-play on the year, I still made baseball play-by-play demos every single year. Right. Uh, I would watch the games from an empty broadcast booth at Kauffman Stadium uh, in Kansas City, and for a handful of games a year, I would do play-by-play into my recorder. Uh, so that way I'd always have current play-by-play. Um, you know, you don't want to be sending stuff that's several years old or even a right. year old. Uh, when you're applying for these jobs, you want something current. Um, and so I did that every year. So, and that's what I sent to the Astros. Um, and so that was part of it. I think the other part of it was, again, like I said, uh, as prepared and as talented as you may be, timing and luck does play a factor in Mm -hmm. terms of getting a major league job. And, you know, the Astros had, uh, before the 2012 season, got new ownership. Uh, you know, Jim Crane became the new owner. Uh, and uh, after the 2012 season, they decided, well, Milo Hamilton, who had been calling Astros games for 30 years, and at this point was only doing home games, he decided to retire. Uh, there were two broadcasters who worked with Milo and also did the road games that Milo did travel for, Brent Dolan and Dave Raymond. And uh, Jim Crane, the new ownership group, they decided that they wanted to start fresh. So they wound up letting go of Brett and Dave uh, as well. So they were going to be looking for an entirely new broadcast. While the team was rebuilding, the Astros in 2012 had just finished their second straight 100-loss season. Uh, You know, they they were still a few years away. They had hired Jeff Luno as general manager uh, before the 2012 season. Uh, so they knew they had a little ways to go. Uh, and the thought process of Jim Crane, the owner, was that you know they could afford to take a chance on a young broadcaster who didn't have any Major League Baseball play-by-play experience because the team wasn't going to be very good. And the hope was that, hey, you know, maybe you this guy develops into someone like a Milo Hamilton who stays here for, you know, two or three decades. Uh, do you have a better chance of that with a younger broadcaster than maybe someone more established? Uh, and also the thought being that, well, the team's not very good now, but this guy will hopefully continue to get better, and by the time the team is good, he'll be better. Yeah. Um, so they were in a position, or at least Jim Crane felt they were in a position, where they could take a chance on a younger broadcaster, and that's what they wound up doing. They interviewed me and uh, an established big league broadcaster who had worked for a few different teams for the play-by-play job on radio, and they wound up choosing me over the established uh, broadcaster. Wow. So what do you think the biggest, like during that whole process, what do you think the bit, uh, the best uh, critique or piece of advice you received from somebody regarding your work? Well, when I sent stuff to every major league team, one of the people who got back to me Uh, was Rob Brooks, who is still the director of broadcasting for the Philadelphia Phillies. And I remember I was in Syracuse, New York. It was Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, You know, Binghamton, New York, where I was living. Mm -hmm. It was about an hour south of Syracuse. And my girlfriend at the time uh, had uh, won a free hotel room uh, with uh, Marriott uh, at any hotel. 
And so we decided, well, let's have like a romantic weekend in Syracuse, New York. I mean, yeah. these are the things you do when you don't have a whole lot of money is have a right. romantic weekend in February in Syracuse, New York. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so we drove up to Syracuse, New York, got to this hotel. We had just checked in. We were about to go to have dinner and my cell phone rings and it's Rob Brooks. Now I hadn't heard from him at all right. at this point, but he called me. And he's like, hi, this is Rob Brooks, the Philadelphia Phillies. I listened to your demo. And we wound up talking for about an hour and a half. Unfortunately, my girlfriend, um, who later became my wife and the mother of my daughter, now has become my Mm -hmm. ex-wife, but delightful person and was always very supportive, still is very supportive of my career. She waited patiently while I took this phone call. Um, And uh, the best piece of advice Rob gave me And it's the best piece of advice I've gotten from anyone uh, as far as the mechanics of baseball play-by-play. Rob said to me, you know, I listened to your your, your demo. Have you done a lot of baseball on TV? And I was like, that was a strange question. I'm like, no, I haven't done any baseball on TV at that point. And he said, well, you sound like you're you're broadcasting for TV. And I was taken aback. I'm like, what is he talking about? Um, And his point was... I didn't, as he put it, address the pitch every time. And addressing the pitch is letting the listener know that the pitch is coming. Uh, Because obviously on radio, they can't see that the pitch is coming. And when you let them know a pitch is coming, that lets them know that, hey, action may be about to happen. You know, the way Rob described it to me, he said, baseball, listening to baseball on the radio is like a rocking chair sport. So you lean back in your rocking chair, you hear the broadcaster say, here comes the 2-1, you lean forward in your rocking chair. And then he says ball low, three and one, you lean back in your right chair. Um, and so he was like, it's, you know, he stressed the importance of always letting the listener know the pitch is coming. Obviously you can vary what you say, uh, but that's a lesson I've taken to this day. I also find that as a broadcaster, when you always address the pitch, the other thing that winds up happening is you're more in tune with what's going on. You're not caught in the middle of a story and then all of a sudden the ball's hit and you got to scramble to describe the play. When you're addressing the pitch, you are always ready for whatever is about to happen. And whether, well, you know, if you're always ready for when the ball gets put in play. Um, and so it just made everything better about my play-by-play, just that little piece of advice. Uh, what For you personally, what do you think makes a great baseball play-by-play announcer like what 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 things i know there's multiple components but what things do you think would separate someone's demo tape from the rest well i think uh obviously the mechanics of play-by-play being descriptive uh painting a good picture and painting a picture is a lot of things it's being prepared and having timely stats and information it's being able to tell stories it's being able to talk about what's going on in the stands it's being able to talk about where the third baseman is playing, whether there's an infield shift, uh, that's all part of painting the picture. Um, and I think you also need to be uh, entertaining. And that's the, that can be challenging for a lot of broadcasters yeah. uh, because I think you have to figure out what is it that you do best, what do you do well, and you want to be yourself. You don't want to force anything. Um, you know, Some people are just naturally funny and gregarious. Uh, if you're that, then, you know, you can do that on the air. Great. A lot of us are not. So you got to figure out something else. Uh, like I've always felt like my strength has been with my storytelling, even if it's a quick anecdote, uh, or just a quick timely stat. Uh, I've always felt that's been my strength. And so that's what I've tried to focus on. Um, 
but you know other broadcasters they're going to focus on other things because that's just what they do well so i think it just really depends on what your strength is and finding your voice and that takes some time for any broadcaster yeah and for you personally in your career you've I want to say reached the pinnacle of success, but you kind of reached that pinnacle game uh, for baseball, Game 7 of the World Series, uh, getting to do it twice over now, including last year. But 2017 specifically for you, what was it like calling a World Series when I know there was Game 5 of that series, which was arguably one of the greatest World Series games you could see, and then in Game 7, the Astros picking up the win over the Dodgers. For you personally, what's it like, uh, uh, the whole build-up to that, your experience making that call where you uh, thinking about it leading up to it or was it kind of just like one of those in the moment things where you're like you know it has to be in the moment I tried to think about it as little as possible yeah. beforehand I've always felt like my best calls come when I'm spontaneous um, and there are differing schools of thought there are some broadcasters who maybe will script things a little bit more if it's yeah. an event that you can kind of anticipate but I've never felt that's been my strength uh, so I of course thought about what I might say uh, really that whole month of October uh, if the Astros won the World Series. And it, it would cross my mind from time to time, and whenever it would, I would just push it away. The other part of that, too, for me was, you know, when you talk about, you know, thinking about what you're going to say beforehand, I mean, so much just depends on the situation. You know, what if the Astros won the World Series on a walk-off homer? Your call is going to be a lot different than it is if they, you know, it's, it ends on a ground ball to second base, which is how it did end. Um, so, you know, what if there's a walk-off homer? What if yeah. uh, the, the, the Game 7 ends or the clinching game of the World Series ends with the Astros getting a big strikeout with the bases loaded and the tying run at third base? I mean, there's just so many different scenarios, so many different ways it could shake out uh, with the Astros winning that I think it's very hard to just kind of sit back and be like, all right, this is what I'm going to right. say. Um, because, you know, or think about, you know, hey, the, you know, I mentioned a walk-off homer. I mean, I think Tom Cheek, the great Blue Jays radio broadcaster, passed away several years ago. I think his call would have sounded a lot different if the Blue Jays had won that 93 World Series mm-hmm. on something other than a walk-off homer. Um, nice. But, you know, he was spontaneous. He reacted. And I think Tom Cheek's calls of Joe Carter's walk-off home run in Game 6 of the 93 World Series is one of the best radio calls of all time. Um so, yeah, I tried to think about it as little as possible. Um, you know, overall, you can always nitpick with any call. Uh, you know, I could have said this differently. I could have done that differently. But overall, I'm pretty proud of how I handled that and, and, and the way it came out. What was game five of that series like? like? Like I said, probably one of the greatest games that you could probably call uh, on TV or even on radio. Uh, I think from what I remember, Guriel hit a big home run, Jose Altuve with a big game-tying three-run home run, a Springer hit one as well, and then Bregman with the walk-off and extra innings. What was that experience like going back and forth, inning for inning, tit for tat in that game with the Dodgers? Well, it was just such a roller coaster because, I mean, you start off Dallas Keuchel on the mound, gives up four runs uh, facing Clayton Kershaw, who was at the peak of his powers at the time. And you're just thinking, man, this is going to be really tough. And the other part of it, too, was the series was tied at two. Uh, Game six and seven were going to be in L.A. So, I mean, you always want to win, but you think about going up three games to two versus going down three games to two and then having to win two games in L.A. to win the World Series. So... Uh, I think the stakes were definitely higher for the Astros than they were for the Dodgers. 
and then you go down for nothing early to one of the best pitchers in the game. And for the way things unfolded, you know, you mentioned Yuli Gurriel and Jose Altuve with big home runs. Those were both game-tying three-run home runs. I don't know that there have been – it's never happened in the postseason, but I don't know that there have been too many games in Major League history where there have been two game-tying three-run home runs hit by the same team in the same game, which just kind of gives you an idea of how crazy that game was. Uh, And there were just so many twists and turns. Uh, And then, you know, getting to the 10th inning, and first of all, keeping the Dodgers off the scoreboard in the top of the 10th seemed like such a win, uh, you know, first of all. And then the bottom, because it seemed like whenever, and this was true, it seemed like most of the series, whenever uh, one team would do something, the other team would punch back. Uh, And so getting through the top of the 10th, I think, is very underrated uh, in that game. And then the bottom of the 10th inning, yeah, at this point it's 12-12, and uh, you got Kenley Jansen on the mound, who I think a big part of that World Series and a big part of that Game 5 is the fact that in Game 2 in L.A., Warren Gonzalez homered off of Kenley Jansen to tie the game in the ninth inning, and the Astros would win that game in 10. Uh, because Kenley Jansen and that Dodgers bullpen as a whole had been dominant all year, and they were having a fantastic postseason. Yeah. They had barely been scored upon through the division series and the LCS. Uh, and that was one of the big storylines. Like, how, is the, how are the Astros and their great offense going to do against the Dodgers' bullpen? Uh, I think getting to Kenley Jansen in Game 2 and then winning an extra innings, I think that was huge because it, I kind of let these guys know, hey, we can, we can do this. We can be successful against their bullpen and against some of their better guys. It's yeah. going to be tough, but it's possible. Uh, so I think that's very key. So in, you get to game five in the bottom of the 10th and Kenley Jansen on the mound and he struggled a little bit with his command and wound up, you know, walking Brian McCann and McCann winds up getting the second and gets pinch run for by Derek Fisher and then Bregman, you know, first pitch swinging the line drive to left. I mean, I can still see it to this day with Derek Fisher flying around the bases yeah. uh, and just it beat a, a really good throw from Andre Ethier from left field. Uh, and just a pandemonium. Uh, and then whenever you play a game that's as long and as exhausting as that game is, and it ends in the fashion that it did, the celebration is just that much sweeter. Because it's like, not only did you just go through this just long, exhausting, exciting game, uh, but you just won it in spectacular fashion. Um, and then you're up three games to two, and now you're one win away from a championship, the first in team history. Yeah. Uh, there was just so many emotions uh, after... Uh, uh, Derek Fisher came across home plate to win that ball game. Uh, and I don't know that you could have ever encapsulated all of it with just a handful of words. I mean, there yeah. was just so much there. Uh, but yeah, that was a great game. And my immediate thought as soon as the game ended and as soon as we got off the air was I'm ready to go to bed because <laughs> I was really tired. It was really late. It was a very long game in terms of time in addition to it being extra innings. Yeah. Um, it was trending to be the longest World Series game in terms of time through nine innings had the game uh, last just nine innings. Oh my uh, God. But, uh, yeah, I just remember I was exhausted, and I was so glad that we were flying to L.A. the next day on the off day yeah. and flying right after that game. Wow. So World Series call aside, what do you think was your uh, favorite call during these last three years, 2017, 2018, 2019, during this big uh, stretch of success for the Astros? Um, well, two really stand out. I mean, the, my call of Alex Bregman's walk-off RBI single in Game 5 of the mm. 2017 World Series. I mean, that's huge, and that was a lot of fun. 
Um, and I remember Regman told me later that offseason that he would listen back to our calls uh, all the time to get him fired up from the 2017 World Series. And I told him, I said, you know, my call of your walk-off hit is my favorite call. And he goes, mine too. <laughs> your favorite. Uh, so that one stands out. And then Jose Altuve with the walk-off home run in the 2019 ALCS, Game 6, to send the Astros to the World Series. Uh, you know, obviously a walk-off homer, and then you throw in the fact that it sent the Astros back to the World Series. There's just so much there. Um, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, to be able to say you got to call a, a moment like that is, is pretty significant. Now, this is going to be, 2020, obviously going to be the first year since uh, the news broke about uh, the scandal and everything. And as an Astros broadcaster this year, obviously it's going to be different. Nobody in the crowd. It's going to be different for everybody due to the pandemic. But uh, given that this is the first season since all that news broke, how do you approach calling Astros games as an Astros broadcaster given all this news? Or do you approach it at all? Well, I think you you know you approach approach every season in a similar fashion. Uh, you know, you talk about what's going on and you talk about what's happened. Uh, I think that you approach uh, the sign stealing scandal a little differently as an Astros broadcaster than you do as a broadcaster of another team, yeah. simply because as an Astros broadcaster, most of the people who are going to be tuning in are Astros fans, and they know the story. They know what happened. Uh, so you're not going to talk about it every game. Whereas if you're a broadcaster for another team, every time you play the Astros, you're going to mention it because it's a storyline with that team. Just like I would mention, you know, whatever storylines with what other, whatever teams the Astros play. Right. Uh, so there's that, but I don't think you completely ignore it as an Astros broadcaster either. Um, and you mentioned no fans in the stands. I think one spot where you would mention it for certain. And I know I did during spring training when, you know, players come to the plate, Astros players come to the plate on the road and get booed uh, because it's just more just like an acknowledgement of, hey, this is this is something that happened uh, and this is why these people are booing. Um, Like I remember during that 2017 World Series, uh, you know, Yuli Gurriel, uh, after he hit the home run, he had a home run in game three off of Hugh Darvish and was caught on camera making uh, a racist and sensitive gesture yeah. uh, referring to you darvish in the dugout you know talking about him to his teammates right um and that story wound up spreading like wildfire during that game um and you know then before game four uh you know commissioner rob manfred at a press conference announcing that Gurriel would be suspended for i think it was five games starting the next year uh, not be suspended during the postseason. Right. Uh, and so I knew at that moment that when we got back to Los Angeles for game six, that Julie was going to get booed every time he came to the plate. Absolutely. Um, and so sure enough, that's what happened. And I remember the first time he came up and got lustily booed, I brought it up. And, you know, I didn't pull any punches. I said, you know, they're booing because, you know, Yuli Gurriel was caught on camera making an insensitive racist gesture. Uh, directed toward you, Darvish. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned how he was getting the five-game suspension and uh, all that, you know, and, I mean, just kind of just state the facts. This is what happened. This is where we're at. This is why he's getting booed. 
Um, and I'd imagine I'll do similar things with the with the sign stealing scandal when you know when when the time is appropriate. Right, and and given that, like you said, that you can't really ignore the fact that it happened, even as an Astros broadcaster, and given that the stadium's going to be empty, you got to assume that uh, the guys down on the field are going to be able to again hear everything that uh, the radio team as well as the TV team says. So how do you think that uh, they would potentially handle that uh, if you were to again, like you said, like not throw any punches, but at the same same time kind of tell it like it is well and i mean i'm kind of curious because i mean the jury's still out on that because if you know they're talking about yeah. piping in crowd noise I, you know that may affect that right in terms of what players are able to hear on the field uh i'm not really sure uh i think i'm, I'm just going to kind of play it by ear uh find out if the players really are able to hear a lot and I don't think it changes what I say. I think maybe, you know, you, you it changes your tone a little bit. Maybe you speak a little softer. Uh, you know, I know there have been jokes about, you know, maybe almost like the golf announcer. Uh, because, you know, golf announcers, the players can hear them. So they're trying to be quiet. And golf is a game right, that's supposed yeah. to be played in, in quiet. Um, so, I you know, I, maybe I, I speak a little softer or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, it just kind of depends on how that goes i think in some places uh you know they, they might be able to close the windows in certain stadiums it's kind of hard to do that with the way the booth is set up at minute Maid park you kind of have to keep it open um so i'm not really sure how i'll handle that i'd like to think i'm hoping that i can broadcast at my normal tone and my yeah. normal voice and all that uh you know, if they're pumping in crowd noise, but I think that's something I'm going to have to figure out as, as we get closer. So the last question I have for you, I don't want to take too much of your time here, but the last question I wanted to uh, get your take on was, what do you think for you, given that you have called uh, now numerous Game 7s, uh, both Championship Series and World Series games, what do you think is your biggest goal moving forward as a play-by-play voice? Well, I think, you know, I keep getting better. Um, I'm very fortunate that I've been with a team in the Astros that has had a lot of success the last few years, and I've been able to call some great moments in team history. Uh, But that's not something I can ever plan. You just don't know how that's going to work out. Um, But I'm very fortunate to have done that. Um, Yeah, I think for me it's just about I always feel like there's room for improvement. I think you're always seeking the perfect broadcast, even knowing that it won't happen. But uh, you're always striving for that and striving to be – as sharp as you can to be as prepared as you can and to describe things as accurately uh, and as clearly as you can. Um, And I think you can always do a better job of that uh, regardless of whether you're calling minor league baseball or calling world series games. Um, And I certainly feel that way. And um, that's something that I'm going to continue to to work on and continue to try and, and tell the story and also adjust to you know, whatever changes come in the game of baseball to try and stay relevant and to just to try and adapt to whatever's new and whatever's different. Now, what do you think that, because uh, you mentioned it, the perfect broadcast, I hear that a lot. What do you think a perfect broadcast would be, at least in your eyes? Well, when you describe everything exactly the way you want, you basically say everything the exact way you want to, and it comes out exactly how you would have hoped. Yeah. You have all the timely stats right when you need them. Uh, I think that those are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's what you're always striving for. Yeah, well, I sure as hope so, and, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I hope you're staying safe out there in Houston. Again, wild times right now with the pandemic and everything, and hopefully we'll be able to hear you on the air in, in the next few weeks. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. I am so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow.
Dallas sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's only gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.